Welcome to the fifth episode of the Neural Compass podcast, back after a short break. My name is Steven Senecrope, and as I'm sure you are blissfully aware, I'm a neuroscience student at the University of Chicago. The disclaimer I begin every episode with is that everything I say here is intended to educate and not as medical advice. Today's episode is on memory, what defines and shapes us as individuals. I'm going to start by addressing some of the misconceptions surrounding memory, and then I'll move into some interesting nuances and finish with some helpful tips. What do you think of when I say the word memory? Your favorite childhood moment? A loved one's face? The scent of your grandmother's cooking? Maybe a seahorse-shaped bit of brain known as the hippocampus? All of these answers would be more than correct. A popular misconception is that memory functions like a picture book or a computer where information is stored in an array or a scene all together and tightly packed. However, in the brain, memory is stored sporadically. To illustrate this, picture in your mind the kitchen of your home, its heart, if you will. Can you see it? Can you smell dinner on the stove or feel the countertop your forearms are resting against? If so, your brain just retrieved visual information from the visual cortex in the posterior of the brain touch and smell from the sensory cortex, emotional information from the amygdala deep within the brain, and other attributes from all over. What I mean is that your memory is less like your local library with shelving and documented books of information, and more like the library of Babel with ever-changing and seemingly infinite, sometimes unreadable tomes. If you're unfamiliar with the myth, your brain pulls information from every corner of itself each time you recall or imagine. Another misconception is that memory is a process solely of the past. Eleanor McGuire spoke at the Royal Institution about how memory at base is a survival process, and that its purpose is not for daydreaming, but to know what to do next, where to go, which helps make memory and its lack of clear organization more understandable. Because for survival purposes, the highest value of memory would be pattern recognition, elements of the popular phenomena known as deja vu where isolated information from memory is recognized. If an early hunter-gatherer saw a plant that last week caused a rash on a hunting buddy, that key link is all that's necessary. It would be inefficient and somewhat cumbersome if the system required a complete recollection of the entire scene of the hunter coming to camp itching and whining. The last misconception I have is regarding amnesia. In cinema, amnesia is often depicted one-dimensionally and never consistently. There are two broad distinctions of amnesia, known as retrograde and enterograde amnesia. The word retrograde here has nothing to do with astrology, but rather means that the patient has difficulty recalling memories prior to the onset of the amnesia, while enterograde means difficulty forming memories after the onset of amnesia. Also, for both cases, this often doesn't involve implicit or unconscious memory, an example being muscle memory. So you'll often see a protagonist with no idea who they are, yet with insane ninja-like talents. Now I want to take you through the process of memory storage and recollection. First off, memory can be split into two broad categories, declarative and non-declarative memory. Declarative memory is conscious recall, while the non-declarative is unconscious recall, which is known as implicit memory, which I'll explain in just a minute. 
With declarative memory, or conscious recall, there are two subsets, short-term memory and long-term memory. You may also hear the term working memory, and that is just a more general term encompassing short-term memory and some related structures for manipulation of that memory. Short-term memory begins on the outer surface of the brain in the region known as the neocortex. This part of the brain controls sensory perception, motor command generation, and language. In order to move into long-term memory, it has to involve both the amygdala and the hippocampus. The amygdala is the emotional center of the brain, contributing connotation to memory and forming its own powerful fear memories, which are strong negative associations like food aversions. The hippocampus is a more complex structure within the brain. The name, as earlier foreshadowed, is from the Greek word for seahorse because of its unique shape. There are two in each brain located symmetrically in the brain's temporal lobes above your ears. Its tie to memory was first established in 1953 when patient Henry Malayson, or patient HM, had both temporal lobes resected or removed in an effort to treat his acute epilepsy. From the surgery, HM developed complete anterograde amnesia, meaning he could no longer form new memories or declarative memories. However, HM still knew who he was, had memories from before the operation, and could form non-declarative, habitual memories. Patient HM's experience illustrates a few key points regarding the hippocampus. It is involved in the processing of new, long-term memories, it is not a storage for memories, and not all kinds of memory involve the hippocampus. Since then, much more research regarding the hippocampus has been conducted. Research published in PNAS, Proceedings in the National Academy of Science, clarifies the role of the hippocampus in creating spatially coherent scenes. And that with damage, subjects have difficulty constructing and piecing together individually individual aspects of an episodic memory. For example, think of a sunny day at the beach. A patient with damage to hippocampus might be able to imagine a bright sun, warm sand, cool water, but they would lack the ability to imagine a coherent scene or put any of those aspects together. Now, what is implicit memory? I've mentioned it a few times now, but all I've said that is, it, is that it's unconscious. Implicit memory is memory you can store and recall without conscious effort. How is that even possible? Well, if you aren't asking that question, then you can probably guess the example I'm about to say. Think about the concept of muscle memory, where when you do a mechanical task many times over and over, you begin to make the motions almost automatically. It's why you do the same thing over and over to practice in sports. Walking is a wonderful example of this. We are trained since infancy how to walk, and now we can all do it without any mental effort governing the multi-muscular movement. There are two main brain regions involved in implicit memory, the basal ganglia and the cerebellum. The basal ganglia is a deep brain region tasked with coordinating movements in sequences, such as raise your leg, extend your knee. You get the point. Interestingly, this is the brain region most targeted by Parkinson's disease, which is a chronic debilitating condition which causes eventual paralysis. The cerebellum is a brain region targeted classically tied to motor control. This region is also responsible for the minute tuning of motions 
such as gently or very softly tapping or caressing something, or maintaining grip on an object. So how is implicit memory stored? It's in the form of something called myelin. Myelin is a substance that covers or sheaths axons of neurons in the brain. If you're unfamiliar with the neuron, it is the basic brain cell, and its anatomy is like a lollipop, with a soma or cell body head and an axon as a long tail. There are also spider webbing dendrites outside the cell body, so maybe it's like a, a lollipop you found in your parents' attic? Anyway, myelin or these sheaths attached to the axon or the lollipop stick where the electrical signal shoots by, and the material causes the electrical potential to actually skip over the myelin coating rather than continuing through the axon. This speeds up the rate at which the signal is transmitted. And as you gain mechanical implicit memory, this myelin builds up in the repeated pathway until you get these automatic movements. Okay, now that I've laid out these distinctions and the mechanisms of memory, let's get into some more practicalities. What everyone is really wondering about. The worst aspect of our memory system is that it is very complex. And with age, it can begin to break down. For many people, this is one of the scariest parts of aging and disease. The idea that you can simply forget your loved ones, your life. And I agree completely. The idea of losing control of your own mind is terrifying. I don't think I've spoken about this on here before, but the idea of control is what really inspired my passion for neuroscience and neurosurgery. The idea of granting someone with paralysis motion again or someone with a debilitating tremor calm again, or someone losing their grasp on memory, their husband or wife or children again. That's a cause I would give my entire life for. But that's enough waxing poetic for now. Let's talk briefly about what dementia is and some cool research on Alzheimer's. Dementia is disorder of mental processes and memory, and it is caused by damage to the brain from disease, trauma, or aging. Alzheimer's is an example of a disease that causes dementia, and new research is coming out linking early Alzheimer's to waste product buildup in the brain. This is still preliminary, but we are learning more and more about the harmful effects of these waste products. Because the brain is a closed system, because of the blood-brain barrier, as I mentioned in the COVID-19 episode, the brain is like a closed ecosystem. So how does your brain clear waste product? Well, one major way is during sleep. So go watch episode one to learn more about sleep, but we are finding lifestyle choices can reduce your risk for Alzheimer's and dementia later on in life. I would call this a wake-up call, but I just told you to sleep, so we'll just call it a call, a call to action. Well, more like a call to inaction. <laughs> so besides sleeping, what can you do to benefit your memory, accelerate your learning, and prevent issues later on? First, I want to address briefly Competitive memorization. People perform feats, such as memorizing a deck of cards or thousands of digits of pi. And these people are not genetically blessed, but rather employ specific strategies and quote unquote hack their memory. One of the most popular techniques is called the memory palace, where you use your imagination to create a system of rooms, each with one part or thing that you are trying to remember. Each room can have a location and a strong image. Now this is a pretty difficult thing to try and do, so I figured out a way to make it a little more beginner friendly. 
My idea and what I'm recommending is what I'll call mnemonic tagging. A key attribute to the memory palace technique is adding semantic and spatial information to something so that it is easier to remember. I think this aspect can be used in isolation of the palace for more casual memorization. For example, say I need to remember the hippocampus is critical in memory. So I'll create a semantic or meaning link. Um, hippocampus sounds like hippo. Hippo sounds like hippopotamus and hippos and hippopotamuses are renowned for their memory. And hippocampus sounds, there's camp. Camps are on the outskirts of town. Hippocampus on the outside outskirts of the brain. And there always seems to be more than one. There's two hippocampus. Now when I think of hippocampus, I think hippos with good memory and open outskirts of town where the camps are. That's just an example, but this could be used in many other ways. Lastly, I want to briefly address dementia versus normal forgetfulness. I feel like everyone, especially as they approach middle age, feels like their memory is going. And to dispel some of that fear, I want to give up one key approach. Normal age-related or random forgetfulness can be combated by focus and attention. If you ever feel like you're always losing your keys or your wallet, make an effort to place it somewhere purposefully each time and see if this forgetfulness improves. If not, and only then, should you begin to worry about having a possible memory issue and seek counsel with a medical professional. With that, I'd like to end today's episode with a re relevant poem by a living poet and a friend of mine, Lauren Camp, originally published in Poem A Day on July 26, 2017. It's titled Original Hope. One borrows time not to be left out. Been in the pattern of sun, secure, recreating. One needs one thing. One father is left with new limits, but one father is left. This repeat is filled with above and below. Do you understand that it won't cease? Every hour compared to dozens of previous hours and angers, and the daughters post pictures of vanishing. Such is a comfort. One agrees to ask for nothing. Under time lives silence. This poem reminds me that memory is not just of the past, but of the future and existent in the present, and that imagining and reliving is truly time travel. And time fails to feel so linear when we can close our eyes and be back there again. Also, the difficulty of coping with illness of memory and caring for a loved one experiencing that. A powerful line to dwell on is, quote, one agrees to ask for nothing, end quote. And that's the fifth episode of the NeuroCompass podcast. With the school year starting up, I'm looking to do some more interviewing episodes. So if you have any ideas or know any wonderful people with knowledge in the neurosciences or psychological topics, send them my way. I can be reached via the website, neurocompass.org, my Instagram, at neurocompasspodcast, or on Twitter, at neural underscore compass. Thank you so much for making it to the end of the episode.